En een hartelijke goeiemorgen, welkom by ons program Skrifteerlik, waar ons wekelijk saam na oplossing soek uit die skrifte, vervra waarmee gewone mense sikkel. Die Bijbel sê in Johannes 17, 17, die woord is waarheid, heilig hulle na die woord, en Psalm 119, sê, die woord is een lamp vir my voete en een licht vir my pad. Kom dan saam met ons vir die volgende uur, wanneer ons geen steen onaangeraak laat om die waarheid te vind en licht te skyn op die vraag uit die skrifte waarmee ek en jy moendlik kan worstel nie. Kry dus gauw jou bybel en kom onderzoek saam met ons die skrifte. Dis moes nou skrifteerlik. Real Radio for real people serving a real God. Tune in to Radio Pulpit 657 AM. Download our app and listen on radiopulpit.co.za En daarmee loos jy aangeskyf na bykant 6 minute oor 11, 42 Jakobusstraat, is waar vanaf ons uitsaai in Atelier 5, dis een levendige uitsending, dit beteken ek en my, amper sê ek met, ja, die mag van die gewoonte, nee, broer en die heren wat ons voor die tijd meegesels het, so, ja, pastoor Rocky Stevenson wat saam met my hier in die atelier is, Rocky, good morning, goeiemorgen, abosjani, morweni, dumelang, pick a language, and uh, how are you doing on this uh, beautiful uh, Tuesday morning? Humunati ha hulun tati. Yeah, sisi dona sere paratiak, skrapi api sere paratiak. Okay, no, I have no idea. Ah, we lost each okay. other there. Good morning to you, my yeah. brother, good morning to wonderful, our, our brothers and sisters. Yeah. Yeah, Vainans, I just got a message from my brother in Portugal saying that his baby girl was born, so I don't think he knows yet that I'm going to be announcing it on air, but really congratulations to my brother Luke and his wife Julia. We praise God for the birth of Ayla Mae Stevenson this morning, and it just happens to be on my other brother's birthday as well, because he was born on the 13th of February, and so this little one's born on the 13th of February as well, so um, a wonderful Wonderful Big celebrations celebration in the, Steve- Stevens in the family. Stevenson family right. today. Well, congratulations, and uh, there's no ways that he's listening. We just got the message now. We could have gotten him on uh, on Facebook, or we could have gotten him on YouTube. But uh, talking about Facebook and YouTube, we're broadcasting live on Facebook and on YouTube. So whether you're in Portugal, uh, whether you're anywhere else in the world, you can watch us on Facebook, you can watch Rocky on YouTube, and stay with us, we here until 12 o'clock. Skrifteerlik die program waar ons die woord van die Heere onderzoek en heel wat mense wat reeds ingespring het. Conrad, goeiemorgen, Matthijs Swannepoel, goeiemorgen, gereelde luisteraars van Radio Kansel, gereelde luisteraars dan van ook uh, Skrifteerlik en heel wat ander mense ook daar op WhatsApp. Lekker om vir julle daar te sien. As jy een vraag het, ergens het iemand iets gesê wat nie sin maak nie. Misschien is het een leefstel vraag. Uh, iemand het my nou hier in die week gekontak en gevra, is God die auteur dan ook van uh, evil, van sonde, van kwaad in die lelik wat ons in die wereld sien? Sien jy daar skrif is in Deuteronomium wat sê, ek maak dood, ek, ek gee lewe, ek maak syk, ek maak gezond. Vraag die persoon nou, het God dan ook uh, Geskip. En dis die type van vraag wat ons hanteer in die program. If somebody said something somewhere, somehow, your pastor, your minister, a family member, a colleague at work, and you're not sure what the scripture says with regards to that, you've done your homework, you've searched the scriptures, and you couldn't find the answer, you're welcome to send it through to us, 082-6572-729. Jou Anita, ek sien jou daar op WhatsApp, goeiemorgen, baie dankie ook vir jou, en ons gaan kyk of ons by jou vraag kan uitkom. So, 082-657-2729. Your favorite radio pulpit WhatsApp number, and we use it for anything and everything here in our studio. You can't phone that number. You have to type out your question, send it through, and just a sideline remark, please make mention of the scriptures that is not clear to you. It just helps us here in studio to find it a little bit quicker. Rocky, time is against us. It's already 10 after 11. Let's kick it off. This one says, uh, let me just find it here. Uh, he asked if we can explain, the listener asked if we can explain a caption from John MacArthur that reads as follows, Before you were born. That's a caption from John MacArthur. Before you were born or had anything, done anything, good or bad, 
God decided whether to save you or not. Now, there's a line of thought, uh, predestination, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. What is it called? What does the Word of God says with respect to that? In fact, this quote here, John MacArthur, by me is a seer, he's rotsfas, he, he's, a, he's a solid preacher. But ultimately, it's not about John MacArthur, it's about God's Word. What does the Word of the Lord say? And, and is there such a thing as predestination? Yeah, um, look, the... It, it, I think, let me start off by saying that I do value John MacArthur very much. I think he's a faithful preacher and that he's done marvelously for the evangelical world in many respects. I think he is an excellent expositor of God's Word as well. And so I have much to, to really uh, sing his praise about in that regard. I think that he's been faithful. He's got a lot of good commentaries. The MacArthur Study Bible is very helpful. Um, He's, he's just he's been faithful at his local church, and he's been on the forefront of so many of the battles, even in our day. But to deal with the statement in particular, before you were born or had, anything, had done anything good or bad, God decided whether to save you or not. This, this has many nuances to it, and if we reflect on it from a theological perspective, it is known, as you mentioned, as predestinationism um, or unconditional election. I do think that there's a bit of a misunderstanding of the term predestination because that, even in Ephesians 1, it, it is a biblical term. Yeah. But if you think about the predestination, what is that saying? You already have the end in sight. But if we look in Ephesians 1, what is the end in sight for? It is for those that are in Christ. There is an end in sight that is secure, and we know what that end is for those that are in Christ. That is what predestination is. And the Pauline biblical mentality regarding something like election is that you are, you believe, therefore you are elect. It is not you're elect, therefore you believe. And that is a, a very key distinction to be to okay. be said. But now if we to break the statement down saying before you were born, and it and it is really this statement comes from a Calvinistic tradition and um and that's where it's really coming from. And I do want to get into something of the history even briefly if I if I can and I'm wondering, uh, you might have to speed me up, Vainant, at some point, because this can, this discussion can it, it be can had take up a whole program. for, a, for yes. a while. Yeah. But but this this idea of before you were born, this this emphasizes the timing of God's decision. According to the Calvinist perspective, then God's choice to save or not to save individuals is not based on anything that ha- that they have done or will do, but is made before they are born. Now. Now, this is there's a mystery element in the Calvinistic viewpoint regarding the sovereignty of God. What I would say the biblical element is is in the foreknowledge of God and in the fact that God knows all things at all times. There's a mystery in regard to the omniscience of God that there is, and that and there's a sense where His thoughts are far above our thoughts. His ways are far above our ways. But we're also not robotic. We're also not just playing out some script that has been made in the heavens. And there's there's a lot of good guys that say a lot of things regarding these things. But I, I do want to get, if I can, into some of what I think is at the core of a statement like this. And then it says, or have done anything good or bad. And that, that clause then underscores the unconditional nature of God's choice. It suggests that God's decision is not contingent on human merit or actions. But in other words, God's choice then to save is not based on human goodness or the lack thereof. And in many respects, when God does save you, it's not about who you are or what you've done, but who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that indeed we would agree with. We would say it's Jesus' perfect person, Jesus' perfect work is what has saved an individual. We would hold to the five solas that have been the Reformation solas, sola fide, by faith alone, sola Christos, by Christ alone, sola gracia, by grace alone, sola scriptura, by scripture alone, sola dia gloria, by the glo- to the glory of God alone. But there isn't a sixth sola that says by uh, uh, Calvin alone, or by um, Luther alone, or by uh, Augustine alone, and and that's or, where we John need MacArthur. to, or by John MacArthur alone, yeah. and that's where we need to also have a caution. We can yeah. value these individuals in their own individual place and recognize that um, that the Lord uses them as He wishes in many respects. But then it says God decided whether to save you or not, and this is the core idea of 
this form of predestinationism um, that we need to be careful of. And this would even lead towards, in a sense, a double predestination, where God would then say, okay, these ones are predestined to heaven, these ones are predestined to hell. And then it asserts that God, in his sovereignty, and it actually it goes further than I believe it, it needs to in regard to the sovereignty of God. If I can paint this idea, um, what happens in this mentality is that God is the grand chess master, and let's say you've come to now play chess against the grand chess master God. Then God forces you to make the move that you make. And then he wins. Does he get the most glory in that scenario? Or if he's the grand chess master and anybody can come play against him, and God in the end will get the glory and he will win. But he doesn't actually force the moves that are made on the chessboard. To me, that's more glorious of who God is. And he gives that freedom to those free that, are, will. That, yes, that, that, that are with him there. And God in his divine sovereignty, in his free sovereignty, has determined to, to allow man to make these choices, to actually, um, and it's, it's not to say that man is not corrupted in his sin, not at all. Yeah. But God in his mercy desires that all men would be saved. And so there is this element that we have to juggle with in regard to what we see in God's word. And with, with, there's also just this element where, where we do need to be careful of almost being able to excuse our sinfulness, to say, well, God made me yeah, do it. Yeah, want to blame you the know, Lord now. Like, uh, actually, all these evil things that have happened in the world, the molestations or the rapes or the murders or the corruptions, that, that's actually something that was this predetermined plan that God now made that happen. And then evil becomes partly the, the fault of God, which would never be because God is holy, holy, holy. And so you can see that theistic determinism actually is problematic. And this is where the root of this kind of a statement comes from. So although this was now attributed to John MacArthur, this is, this is in line with the theological school that he upholds in many respects. But it's also then to also differentiate between the unconditional election and then that broader concept of predestination. Because in the biblical terms, predestination, as outlined in, in a passage like Ephesians 1 verse 4 to 5 refers to believers being chosen and predestined in Christ. And that's the element that is most critical there, the in Christ element, not a predestination determined before their union with Christ. So it's once you are united with Christ that you are predestined in Christ. And that's what first, uh, that's what we see there in Ephesians 1. And it says there in Ephesians 1 4 to 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That in him is critical, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, in Christ, we are chosen before the foundation of the world to be conformed and holy and blameless. That is an in Christ element. That's where there's this determination that when you are in Jesus, this is who you're going to be. Yeah. You're going to be somebody that shows the fruit of the Christian life when you are in Christ. That is what God has determined. Now, to say that God has determined whether this one goes to hell and that one goes to heaven, I think goes further than what we see in Ephesians 1 verse 4 to 5. Now, I do know that there are passages like Romans 9, and I don't want to um, uh, you know, be too... Uh, let's say, uh, unawares of other passages that do refer to something like Ishmael was hated while before he was born and Isaac I loved. Esau. And, yes, Esau. And yeah. there God, God has his, uh, God is God. And yeah. I think that that's where we do need to wrestle and go, we are not God, but God is God and we need to let God be God. But the predestination element of Ephesians 1 verse 4 to 5 in the context of the very passage, and if you go and read the whole of Ephesians, you just see the, the element of in him, in Christ. That is the thing that ought to actually take our focus before even making a statement like this. So in summary, the unconditional election is the specific doctrine that addresses God's sovereign choice in salvation, while predestination, as described in Ephesians 1, actually pertains to believers being chosen and predestined in Christ, and clarifying that distinction then helps us to understand this. But I, I want us to just briefly look at something of the history of theistic determinism, because I think that that is where the element of this phrase even would come from. And, and 
very much this would go back to somebody like John Calvin uh, around 500 years ago, who was a key figure in the Protestant Reformation. And he articulated really a robust view of God's sovereignty and predestination in his theological writings. He also emphasized God's absolute control over all things. And you'll hear guys like uh, Vody Buckham today will say there's no um, or actually, I think it was R.C. Sproul. He said that there's no atom, that there's no rogue atom in the universe. Yeah. You know, there's there's that meticulous control that God has in that sense. And I think that goes a bit further than, but it's, it's in line with what Calvin has taught you. And so he emphasizes God's absolute control over all things, including the salvation of the individual. Now, of course, we know that God is the one that gets all of the praise and all of the glory for the salvation of a soul. No one can save themselves. Only God saves. And he desires to save, and he makes it possible to save. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says Exactly, and man is responsible when he's not saved, because God has done everything that is possible for man to be saved. So there's nobody that stands without an excuse before God. Even the greatest atheists have had an opportunity to hear the gospel by reasoning, by virtue of reasoning that there is no God. I mean, he has no excuse. Uh, He's had the opportunity to say, how would you put it in a nutshell? It's it's an interesting question question if you yeah. have to put it tie it together for us how would you yeah, put it it's, in it's a difficult to actually put it into a nutshell I've, i was having an, a discussion with a brother just the other day about this on a saturday and you kind of get a bit of a blank stare <laughs> i do think it's helpful to go back into history yeah. because this makes it it, it, it it really comes alive if you go yeah. back to the synod of dort for example in 1618 to 1619 there at that synod there's there was this gathering of reformed theologians in the early 17th century and they addressed theological controversies, including debates relating to predestination. And then at the Synod, uh, they affirmed Calvinistic doctrines and rejected Arminianism. Now, now I, I believe that Arminianism is absolutely off the charts yeah. wrong, biblically. Yeah. But I do think that there's sometimes a pendulum swing that we can do. When we are now debating a certain point, we can go almost all the way to the other side. And then you have the Westminster Con- Confession of Faith that, I mean, it's a wonderful document in so many ways. And there's the 1689 Baptist Confession comes from the West minister confession as well and that's been used for uh, many years with the presbyterians etc and that was a foundational document also for the reformed uh, theology and and it was and and this all affirmed theistic determinism but where did this theistic determinism come from and and luther has it in his writings and calvin has it in his writings but it goes back actually all the way to augustine and when you start to understand augustine's life and the fact that augustine was so impacted by a greek philosophy and you start to see the stoics now the Stoics held to fatalistic determinism. That was it will be will be. You know, the fate is already yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. So and and this is where we got theistic determinism from. And then you start to realize and you get you put one and one together and makes two, and you start to recognize that sometimes Greek philosophy has even made its way into some of the ways that men have interpreted the scriptures. Yeah. And we need to be careful that we don't have what is called presuppositions. A presupposition is where you have a truth in your own mind that you say, This is true already. And you actually don't question that truth based on what you see in the scriptures. And then you suddenly able you, you put in on a lens and you start to read the Bible through that lens. What we need to do as best as what we can as Christians is we must come to God's word with a humble attitude that goes, I'm going to leave all of my presuppositions aside and I'm going to deal with this passage the way that God has called me to this passage. If the word of the Lord says it, I believe it, that settles it. Yeah. So there's there's a divine in 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 the the the, the theistic determinism in in the more Calvinistic strain you have this divine sovereignty um, where theistic determinism in Calvinism then emphasizes God's absolute sovereignty. Now we would say God is sovereign. He is. He's absolutely sovereign in the sense that he has given us this world, he's given us his word, but he, he calls on man to be responsible yeah. underneath him. And so All that's right. where there's there's this kind of like a a blurry line yeah. in that sense. And it's difficult for us to get this, these things. Mm-hmm. These concepts mm-hmm. are huge for us. So these theologians have often uh, painted a framework to be able to understand these things. Mm-hmm. But we need to be careful that we don't go so far with the framework that yeah. we forget about the, that which is mm-hmm. said in, in, the, in the Bible. And I, and I do want to say that there is also this what is called compatibilism, where Calvinists in particular will often have this idea where they go, but... 
Uh, there's this God's determination, but there's also the human free will that are in coexistence. And I think that that would be closer towards yeah, what yeah, we have yeah. from the scriptural perspective. But I think that mm-hmm. we, we do want to be careful with these things. What, what we have in the Bible, God has desired that all men would be saved. God has done everything that is possible for all men to be yeah. saved. He has, he has, the gospel has gone forth, and we, we are responsible to yeah. turn towards him. And so this day... If you're a listener and you do not know Jesus, turn to him. And you cannot blame your sin on God. Yeah. You cannot say, well, God made me do it because he, uh, he controlled that you thing. Can't he can't be tempted. Do Word that. says that. Uh, we we yeah. call to be holy as yeah. he is holy. And I think that that's the humble place where we call to that relationship with the Lord. Yeah. And, um, and, and that would be, I guess, my closing remark is that we must search our own hearts to walk rightly with the Lord. Somebody said, uh, Rocky, he said, we're talking about the color of red, the blood of Jesus that sets us free. And then we get a whole lot of guys that starts debating the shade of the color <laughs> red, uh, talking about the shades and try and explain to each other what color, what shade are you looking at? I know it's red, but what shade are you looking at? Don't yeah. get confused. Don't and get swept that's away. maybe worthwhile just um, yeah. saying that, that all of us have got feet of clay. Yeah. Uh, and and that's where we need to be careful that we don't, you know, we, we, we've, in, the, in let's say the Protestant movement, we have rejected the idea of a pope. But then we sometimes make little popes yeah. out of other, other men. And that's something that Paul actually addressed in First Corinthians. You yeah. know, some people say, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm yeah. of Apollos. Yeah. No, we are of Christ. And I think that that's the area that we need to get back to. So we can appreciate men in history. We can appreciate Calvin and Luther and... Zwingli, and yeah. we can appreciate men like um, Spurgeon. I mean, what a wonderful Tozer. Uh, Tozer. Yeah, mm. I mean, there's there's a brother that you yeah. you know that I'm a big fan of. Is yeah. A.W. Tozer. And we can appreciate these brothers, but all of them are, have feet of clay. Yeah, uh, all of them have difficulties. And one of the and things so I, do we. One of the things I learned about Tozer the other day is that his wife really didn't want him in ministry, no. and so he had a very hard home life. You know, yeah, you have this guy that's so brilliant in so many ways, and uh, they would have such tensions, you know, uh, or even on Sundays uh, between him and his wife. Yeah, and yeah you have this. Didn't this Jesus himself said, I, I came to bring division in the house? Yeah. Didn't he say yeah. it himself? And so you start to see that, yeah. that all of us have got feet of clay, and th- yeah. there's the area that we need to be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit as we study God's Word in prayer before Him, asking yeah. Him, Lord, remove my presuppositions, help me to take your Word and let you say what you mean and mean what you say. God's word says it. I believe it. That settles it. Leave it at that. 27 after 11. Good morning. Scriptural. Scriptural. Ons keir saam tot en met 12 uur. Baie dankie dat jy saam luister in jou huis, in jou motor, in jou werkplek. Pastor Rocky Stevenson with me in stereo. Next one. Anonymous. Huge writing here on the uh, on the screen. And it says, good morning, Vainan, Pastor Rocky. Uh, please keep me anonymous. It says, me and my wife got the same thing pressing on our hearts. There is a person at church who feels we dress in proper in proper manner for church please understand that this is not to start an old debate about how to dress for church but it seems that dressing a certain way where you don't know if you want to be in or out after clothes is not the way it should be i get this feeling that there's something uh, to say about this in a church i do not want this to seem as if it's coming from self, in inverted commas there. If this is something to say, something, uh, is this something to say about something, how to, how one should go about this, how to get dressed? Rocky, your, 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 your thoughts on this, yeah. what would you say I, I about this? I think you read it just slightly off because the person's saying that they, him and his wife, have got somebody at church that they they believe is dressing inappropriately. My apologies. Um, yes, so I, I, this, I, I this did. This person it. wasn't yes. uh, thinking that they're dressing inappropriately. Yeah. Right. But I think that there is something to be said on this. I, I do believe that there ought to be a reverence with which we worship the Lord. We ought not to be a distraction by either overdressing or even by, by underdressing. And um, I, I know that we do need to be careful with regard to this as well in that we that we should show a level of patience, but we also ought to... I think that there's there's an onus even on leaders of a congregation to be very careful towards these type of things. And I, and I do think that where the direction of the leadership of a congregation goes, the way that the leaders and the leaders' wives and the leaders' children dress makes an impact on the rest of the congregation. And, and so there would be one of the places I would examine even in a local church if you find that there is inappropriate dress. And, and usually you'll find that the inappropriate dress, and this is not to make a, a complete uh, statement, 
on it w- would be from uh, those that are, are ladies in the congregation that might come uh, not as well dressed as they ought to be or with a little bit less dress than what they should have. And um, and this becomes then a distraction because um, men are particularly visual. Um, men uh, can sometimes be tempted in that regard, but women also do like to be looked at in that. And so there are different sin It's a motive of the heart. Eh? And it's the motive of the heart element that does need to be uh, kept in mind. But uh, here's a couple of tips that I would give to this listener who's asked to remain anonymous. Um, I would say private conversation is one of the best things. And there's appropriateness with this. And I would say that it is more appropriate for an older woman to address a younger woman um, in this regard. And so instead of addressing the concern publicly, Consider then having that private conversation with the person, and there's, you know, it, it's it's one. It's thing. almost the Matthew 18 route. It is the Matthew 18 route, and I do think, in particular, you would want a, an older woman to address a younger woman. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes a person actually does not necessarily know, yeah. um, and you want to be able to address that. So, very important what you're saying there is with issues like this: women counsel women, men yes. counsel men. Yes. And I think that that is the best uh, the best way. I think in, in all of church matters, actually, I mean, we, we put a policy in place. And it's an unwritten one, but even my fellow elder and myself, we do not go and visit a woman alone. We do not counsel a woman alone. If somebody came to our church and they were desperately needy of counseling and they came forward and said, please, pastor, would you see me? I'd, I'd get another older brother, one of my fellow elders or somebody else to come and sit with me. Um, and we would then maybe talk with that person for a bit, but then that person would be handed over to another another older woman at some point. But then I also think that when you're doing that private discussion, that allows you to not have to actually just interrogate the heart motives and to be able to see without that embarrassment or the discomfort of that being addressed necessarily uh, right from the, 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 the pulpit as such, you know, it might get to that place where, where it needs to be addressed from the pulpit. If you start to see that, that there's multiple people in a congregation yeah. that are actually yeah. coming there dressed in a way that is just not appropriate. Let me go to another um, illustration of this. When I first got to Benoni Bible Church, and um, I think that this is safe to say it's a, it's a number of years ago already, we would have sometimes some of our leaders um, at the front of the church in slops and short pants. Flip-flops. Uh, flip-flops and short pants. Yeah. Um, leading the, the Sunday service. And one of the things I quickly instilled is I just put a, a, a note out to them and I said, I would like you in chinos, smart shoes, and a button-up shirt because you're a distraction. You can be a distraction either way. If you're too casual, it can be a distraction. If you're too smart, it sometimes can be a distraction. Yeah. But the point is we're not there to draw any attention to ourselves. We're there to give all of the glory to Jesus. Can I ask you this? Shouldn't the motive of the heart be not, I'm appearing before the king of the king. Yeah. I'm not going to church to get. I'm going to church to give worship, and therefore I will dress in an appropriate way. Wouldn't that be? Because if you're invited by the leader of a country to to join him for lunch or dinner surely you would dress in an appropriate way isn't it and yeah. so much more so so i'm i'm asking you shouldn't it be the motive of the heart uh, and and whether 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 the main thing is I'm, bef- I'm appearing before the God of the universe. Yeah, and I think the biblical principles to, to cement this into the scripture as I respond to what you've just said there. First uh, Timothy 2 verse 9 to 10 says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty and self-restraint, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women professing godliness. Yeah. Now, you might have somebody that actually isn't professing godliness that has been coming to church, and that may be a, 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 an area where you can actually evangelize and where you can see the deeper heart need of Christ. There's somebody that maybe is and, and I think you need to be careful to say somebody's is attention seeking. I think you need yeah. to be or careful unsaved. about yes, or careful about just assigning something like yeah. that. But it may be that they actually are looking for attention. But you can direct them to Jesus, yeah. and you can direct them to the one that satisfies the soul, yeah. and the one that actually will uh, that that does respect them in that regard yeah. that He gave His life for them. You know, First yeah. Peter three verse three to four says, "Your adorning must not be merely external, braiding the hair and the wearing of gold jewelry or putting on garments, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God." And so. There's the biblical principles that I think can be given to somebody like this. But 
I, I do think discipleship is the area that yeah. that he's been touched on here. Sometimes we've made our church services almost this entertainment thing where we're a group of people, we've come together and going to church is the big thing. But actually, there ought to be a discipleship where older women have the freedom in a congregation to disciple the younger women, and where older men have the freedom in a congregation to disciple the, the younger men. And then even to encourage understanding, you know, where somebody just... You don't have to even attack something necessarily. Sometimes yeah. you just need to talk about it and go, I mean, I've, I, I'm going to probably draw up a little letter at some point for our men that are ushering at, yeah. at church um, on, on a similar thing to this. And it's not to say that that the clothing is everything, but it is very much the heart. But if you if you have ushers at the door, that that's your first people that you yeah. see when you yeah. come to Benoni Bible Church. Yeah. Yeah. And what impression does that give yeah. to those that see it? So clothing does matter. It does matter. Regard. It does. The feathers does make the bird. I'm looking at John 21 and verse 7 <coughs> as well, where uh, Peter uh, realized that it's Jesus, Simon Peter, that is, it's Jesus on the beach. And it says he put his, his, his top cloak. Uh, it's a it's a kleed boon aangetrek. And it's once again getting dressed uh, in the presence of the Lord. Rocky, can I just grab three, 30 seconds here and share something? Mm. Many years ago at a church down in Port Elizabeth, we had the opportunity and, and the, the wonderful, uh, opportunity to prepare communion for our church. And I will never forget it. The Sunday morning, my wife rose early and, uh, she was busy in the kitchen and cutting the bread and preparing the juice. And, and then we would uh, put it in the car, take it to church. And I will never remember, forget at that moment, I ran. I just had my jocks on and I ran to the kitchen because I was so excited that uh, I wanted to help with the communion. And just before I ran into the kitchen, something, Rocky, uh, you can say the Holy Spirit, you can whatever, but something stopped me dead in my tracks and said, get dressed properly before you stand and work with a communion, uh, midi bruit in midi, midi, uh, midi, uh, sup. And I had to go back to my room and put on a t-shirt and get dressed properly. And then I went to the kitchen and I remember to this day and in my heart, it was the Holy Spirit stopping me there. So, because feathers does make the bird. Die, die, die kleren wat ons dra is belangrijk en hoe ons voor die Heere verskyn en hoe ons moet die goed van die Heere omgaan. Look at the priests in the days of old, how they dressed to appear before the Lord. And mm. I know it's pushing a bit far, maar ek wil net graag die bykie gedeel het met jou. Yeah, no, that is, that is helpful as you, as you think through that. And I, I think that, you know, they, they, we have to think wisely through these type of a matters. You know, for example, if this is referring to a young girl yeah. that is dressing badly, yeah. well, who's the father of that girl? Yeah. Does she have a father to go and speak to? Uh, does she have an authority figure in the home that Very is that so. can be spoken to? Yeah. Can it be done in such a way that is uh, honoring to the Lord and yeah. uplifting to, to Jesus' name? Um, sometimes dealing with something right away isn't the best way. Uh, sometimes dealing with it over time is the yeah. best way as well. Sometimes somebody can come to the church and they aren't dressed well, but they need to be able to see. And, 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 and this has happened even at Benoni Bible Church where somebody has come and they're not well uh, dressed in that sense. But they soon learn by looking around them that the women at Benoni Bible Church are dressed with dignity. There's a culture. And, and they start to feel out of place themselves yeah. without you even having to say something. Yeah. Now, of course, if there's a two-week, three-week, four-week process i think that there's also i would say as well um that to this listener there will be leaders in yeah. your local church yeah. that um you know if it's not appropriate for your wife to go and address this person uh, that maybe you could go to the leaders and say to them what do you guys think about this how would you deal with this yeah. and so i do think that there um if you can then involve the leadership in this it, it can also help but another thing that we sometimes r neglect and almost leave till the last on a list like i've done now with my yeah. with my tips here is to pray to pray about this you yeah. know pray that the lord would convict the heart and that he would change the heart. Uh, many a times we see the outside of mm. a person, but, but God, God looks sees, at the yeah. heart and yeah. he sees the heart and he can bring that same conviction like you had running to the kitchen. Yeah. God brings that type of a conviction at times and he changes the heart of man. So I hope yeah. that's helpful for our listener. 
Baie dankie, en die luisteraar het gevra om anoniem te blij, ek hoop uh, ons, we've discussed this rather in depth, and I hope uh, that uh, through the tips that Rocky is giving you there, that uh, God will work wonders in that uh, congregation. Een geliefde broer en heren, wat gereeld deelneem aan die program, Matthijs Sonnepoel, daar het een mams en tootheid, ek weet nie of hy nou hier in Gauteng is of daar nie, hy sê, morgen broers, verduidelik asjeblief, 2 Korintiërs 12 vers 7 tot 9, it's all about the thorn in the side of Paul, 2 Korintiërs, Rocky, can I ask you to just read it, 2 Korintiërs 12 and verse 7 to 9, yeah. and if you could share a couple of thoughts, a lot has been said about the, the thorn in Paul's side. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you've got to say. Would you kindly just read 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 9? says this, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So, part of what we see from the Apostle Paul, and right after this he says, Therefore I am well contented with weaknesses, with, Ill, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships, for the sake of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So verse 10 of that passage actually gives a broader list of areas that actually can bring weakness, insults, uh, distresses, persecutions, hardships. If it's for the sake of Christ and I'm made weak in that regard, then I rejoice because actually it's in that weakness that the Holy Spirit makes me even stronger. But we also see the reason that this happened, and he he's very key on this. He says, I've I've received these great revelations from God. I've seen marvelous things from him and and Paul himself may be the one that went up to the third heaven. He speaks in the in the third person when he talks about the man that he knew that went to the third heaven and uh, the visions that Paul got even 1 Corinthians 11 where he talks about and this is just before, you know, in, in the first book of Corinthians in chapter 11 where he recites the way that the Lord's supper is to be had and he says this was delivered to me by Jesus. Jesus actually gave direct revelation to the Apostle Paul. And so he says from, from to keep me from actually exalting myself. He has the danger that he has. And he says it twice in verse 7. He says to keep me from exalting myself. And then at the end of verse 7 he says to keep me from exalting myself. There's a reason, a God-given reason that the Apostle Paul says that this thorn in the flesh was given. It was to keep him from exalting himself. This was to keep the Apostle Paul humble. He doesn't explain to us exactly what this thorn in the flesh is, but we know that the result was that it kept him humble. Now, there's a lot of different thoughts on what that thorn in the flesh could be. My greatest guess would be that it was an eyesight problem because there's other places in the scriptures where Paul actually says, look, I've signed this in my own hand, and that's why the letters are so big. You know, when he saw Jesus in that Damascus journey, uh, he was blinded for three days before he received his sight back. And so when he wrote, he would write in such big letters because he couldn't see very well. And Paul may have felt that he could do so much more for Jesus if he could see better and he's on so many trips and so many journeys and so many uh, difficulties along his way and you know God can you not remove this thorn in my flesh and they didn't have glasses like we do now exactly Um, and and God didn't remove this thorn from his flesh that also shows us that there are certain things even when you know Paul and Peter people were healed I mean there were miracles that happened you remember the snake that bit uh, Paul and he didn't die he just shook shook it off into the flames and then the people start bowing down because they believe believe that he's God uh, or that he is a God Uh, but there's certain things even apostolically he's begging Jesus three times to remove this and God refuses to remove it but you can also see how even and yes where we do see something of a connection between the sovereignty passage that we looked or the ideas that we talked about earlier where Satan even is in that sense in inverted commas God Satan because this is a messenger of Satan in his flesh yeah. this is affecting him in that way he sees this for what it is Satan is, is busy harassing me but God's going I'm over this you know I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's allowing this so that it keeps you from pride 
because that would be so much more dangerous because then you'd fall into the trap of Satan in that regard. So there's this metaphorical language, this idea of a thorn in the side. I've actually had a, as a strange experience on the side. I once had this man in the uh, the church with me and he's no longer in the church with me, but he believed that he was the thorn in my side, you know, that God. Had, <laughs> that was his calling. You, know, you just think to yourself, like, how does somebody get that arrogant to actually believe that God put them there to be your thorn in the side? No, yeah. I'm here to keep you humble, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. no, like, no, you have the Lord to keep you humble in that sense. So I think we have to be careful of how we would interpret the idea of a thorn in the side and the exact nature. We're not sure exactly, but I think that the response is crucial and we mustn't miss the response where God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that statement just emphasizes the idea that God's grace is more than enough to sustain Paul through this difficulty, whatever this difficulty is, because verse 10 gives us an idea of the kind of difficulties that could make somebody weak. We don't know exactly what this is with the Apostle Paul, um, but but this this is the, the critical element. God's power is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness, and that's a, a really a profound theological point. And it also suggests that God's strength is more evident and effective in our moments of weakness. And I can just testify to this even this last Sunday at Benoni Bible Church. I've been struggling a bit with a head cold or flu or whatever, and you feel so weak, but God in his mercy still uses you. And yeah. you pray to him and you say, Lord, and it just so happened that we had no power either. We had issues with our power at church. And so we were without any microphones, without any, you know, we had issues, man. Uh, but but even <laughs> there, the Lord in his kindness actually shows himself to be uh, above that. And just think of that, how marvelous the Lord is to use people that are so frail and to use situations that are such a mess to actually receive glory from us. I mean, we can hardly do one thing properly, let alone multiple things properly. And the Lord holds the whole universe in his hands. And yet he still provides for us. He still works with us. And he still uses us. Beautiful ashes. Exactly. So, I mean, what what a valuable lesson that we can learn from the Apostle Paul to rely on God's grace in times of adversity and to understand that even in our weakest moments, it's just, I think God actually really likes to do that. He likes to use weakness for his glory and to show that he, he loves to glorify himself. And there's, I guess, the, the encouragement for our listeners is have a heart like the Apostle Paul that desires to give God the glory. Then God will even use your weaknesses in such ways that you will marvel and go, wow, mm. God actually did something good there. Right, bless your heart. Thank you so much. Uh, Matthijs, I hope this answer is for you. Second uh, Corinthians twelve seven and 9. And uh, noteworthy to see that Rocky read scriptures around that as well. And then it starts falling into context. Wonderful, always. If you've got a question, welcome to send it through. Schrift here, tot en met 12 uur. Ons het dit, wat te sê, die oorloos het 13 minuten oor. En baie dankie ook vir jou deelname aan die program 082-657-2729 en jy dan baie welkom om van ons jou vraag hier deur te stuur in die atelier um, kom ons kyk gauw wie is ons volgende luisteraar uh, laat ek net seker maak moet rakkie daar en ja, jy kan ons volg op uh, YouTube channel, you can follow on Facebook, you shall see signs and wonders. Ek maak signs in hierdie kant, and I wonder waar we het gaan, maar dat is mekaar sy harte weer gevind. Right, morning, uh, Ike has posted this question, morning, does God answers prayer conditionally, and how long does it take for the Lord to answer? Uh, Ike, is there a short answer to this, uh, Rocky? Uh, yes, I think the... I think the short answer would be yes. There is a there is at times condition. Firstly, the condition would be: is it in alignment with God's will? Because sometimes, and in the Bible even tells us in in James, we ask. Uh, sometimes we don't receive because we do not ask, and then we don't get because we ask wrongly to spend it upon our passions. Yeah. And so we must be those that pray in accordance with his will. May your will be done. And that's what Jesus actually touches on in the Lord's Prayer in, in Matthew 6 verse 10, where believers are to pray for God's will to be done. And if a prayer then aligns with God's purposes and God's plans, it's most likely that it will be answered in the affirmative. 
there are times also where the answers to prayer are withheld, even through the spiritual battles that are around. So the part of the second part of the question is actually asking about how long does it take to answer? You'll remember somebody like Daniel actually had an answer already, but there was an angelic spiritual battle that took place where he did not receive the the answer immediately. But then also the element of faith, because faith is is often highlighted in the Bible as a condition for answered prayer. We see that in God's Word. On multiple occasions, the the emphasis on the importance of faith when approaching God in prayer. In Matthew 21, uh, 22, let me actually just turn there quickly. In Matthew uh, 21, uh, verse 22, says, "And And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. And so there is a condition element to to prayer. You must have faith. You must believe that God actually hears what you're saying. That's part of what pleases the Lord. Hebrews says that it's impossible to please the Lord apart from faith. You must trust in God's character and believe in his ability to respond. And then that, that is absolutely essential in regard to prayer. But then repentance and righteous living is another condition for answered prayer. Some biblical passages actually suggest that repentance and a repentant heart and righteous living can impact the effectiveness of our prayers. If we do not have a heart that is right before the Lord, then how can we expect that the Lord will actually hear us when we pray to him? We must be those that are walking rightly with him. You know, Psalm sixty-six, eighteen says, If I see wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's an interesting passage because if we are not If we are harboring wickedness in our heart, why will God listen to us? In fact, in the New Testament, in 1 Peter, it talks about the husband living in a way that is understanding with his wife so that your prayers are not hindered. So there's conditions to our prayers. If you're not living in an understanding way with your wife, it might be that your prayers are busy hitting the ceiling and that God's not hearing it. Because you want God to live in an understanding way with you as as being part of the the bride of Christ. But now you don't want to live in an understanding way with your wife. And then there's even persistence is something that we're called towards. And Jesus taught about persistence in prayer. You remember that story about the persistent widow in Luke 18, verse 1 to 8, where while, while God maybe he was swayed not necessarily by the fact that this person was praying, but by the persistence in this praying. So sometimes we need to just keep on praying. So I hope that answers the question in some nuanced ways. Right. Uh, I can bless your heart. Thank you so much for posting uh, your questions. Skriftierlik was it nog so uh, like it for my vier, vijf minuten oor om a vraag te antwoord en kom ons gaan na ons volgende luisteraar. Weinand Pastor, okay, our pastor says, the Bible says, all right, so let's get this right. Our pastor says, the Bible says, quote, unquote, we are in this world, but not of this world. I'm keeping them anonymous on purpose here. Uh, not sure where, how deep we're going to delve with this question. He says, but I don't find it in the Bible. I know that some people, something people say, but is that what it is? I, I'm, I'm just asking, I'm just saying, uh, do we indeed find this in God's word? We are in this world, but we are not of this world. Yeah, I think that there uh, there are biblical principles that do back up that statement. For example, in John 17, verse 14 to 16, it says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So there's a passage that does touch on that in in Corinthians as well. And I'm trying to remember, I'll probably need to categorize it in my mind to actually find it. Um, But in, in the book of Corinthians, Paul actually instructs, the the Corinthian believers to have nothing to do with the sexually immoral. Yeah. And then he, he makes a statement, and I believe it's in Second Corinthians, he says, um, I, I wasn't talking about those that are in this world, because otherwise you'd have to do nothing with anybody. Uh, but But I'm talking about those that profess to be brothers and don't have a part in that. So I do think that there is biblical warrant for a statement like that. Um, Your pastor might not have given you the exact verse references of John 17, but the point is that the Christian 
is a person that is in this world, but not of this world, if indeed they've been born again. Because if you are born again and you have the Spirit of, of God in you, you have the Holy Spirit and you've died with Christ in his death and resurrection and you've been resurrected with him, then you're somebody that's not of this world. You're somebody that is in Christ and therefore you're an, an otherworldly person. You are somebody that is an ambassador for the for the Lord. You have been transferred from the the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. And so there is that, um, I, I think that, that you can take your pastor at what he said there and um, and believe him with that. All right. Bless your heart. Thank you so much for that one. And then our last one, I think we're going to squeeze this one uh, maybe it's going to take a little bit more. Uh, it's got to do with Matthew 11 and verse 12. Matthew 11 and verse 12. Jesus is saying that God's kingdom. Uh, it, I'm not sure if there's enough time in that said, so, maar die da, van die da van Johannes die dooper af tot nou toe, word die koninkryk van die hemel bestorm. In bestormers begryp dit met geweld. Ek is nie seker of ons genoeg tyd oor het die, die listener is asking for explanation. What does that mean? Can we put it in 30 seconds to a minute? Yeah, we can We can give it an attempt. Let me read it in English as well. Uh, Matthew eleven twelve. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Now, um, the, the key points, even in interpreting this, we can think about the days of John the Baptist, that even until now, he says, so he's given a specific time frame, and that indicates also the specific period in which significant spiritual events were taking place between John the Baptist and now what Jesus is busy saying at this point. And that points to the time when John was actively preaching and also preparing the way for the Messiah. Then the kingdom of heaven, uh, where Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven as forcefully advancing, that implies the sense of urgency and the progress and the intense spiritual activity associated with the arrival of the Messiah and the proclamation of the, the kingdom, because that's part of what John was doing, and that's part of what Jesus was doing even in his proclamation of the Bible. And he says, forceful men take a hold of it. And that's the second part of that verse, and a forceful men take hold of it. And that suggests that those who are earnest and fervent and determined in seeking the kingdom of heaven are the ones who will enter into its blessings. And you can just think about those tax collectors, those fishermen, those um, those sinners that forcefully uh, took a hold of this. Even you think about that one Samaritan uh, woman who forcefully takes hold of this, and Jesus actually commends her faith in, in that regard. So it emphasizes the active pursuit of God's kingdom and the importance of personal commitment. Wonderful, Maggie. I hope that answers it for you. Bless your heart. Time to love and leave you. Three minutes to 12. Rocky, somebody want to be in touch and write your email? How do they yeah, get hold of welcome you? Welcome to email me at pastor at bononibiblechurch.co.za. God is able to uh, make a beauty for ashes. No matter where you are, trust that this program has meant something to you. It's good to listen to Rocky, Radio Pulpit, your pastor, minister, reverend, whoever. Acts 17.11 says, Now search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Bless your heart. Thank you for watching on YouTube. Thank you for watching on Facebook. Thank you for listening on 657 AM. Till next time, keep well. God bless you and shalom.